Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Daylight Savings Time. Not my favorite day of the year. <laughs> I was so frantic last night. I, said, I kept telling my wife, Laura, we've got to go around and make sure we change the clocks before we go to bed. Little did I know that my iPhone does that automatically, so I had no problem getting up this morning. So this morning, we're going to talk about my part in fulfilling Christ's vision. And our, our sermon series, as you know, is when we look at the awesome power of vision, you know, it's important to recognize that we all face the temptation to pursue our dreams. That's what we want to do. And we call that vision. And then we ask God to bless it. You know, Christ's vision, though, should be the heartbeat that pumps through everything we do. So the question is, how do we separate Christ's vision from our own? How do you know what, you, what your part is in this whole process, your whole purpose of fulfilling his vision? You may ask, what's the difference between purpose and vision? Because while vision builds on purpose, there are definite differences between the two. I'm going to share a couple this morning. Purpose clarifies, but vision motivates. Purpose is the reason you live, but vision is the song your heart sings. Purpose gives meaning, but vision prompts action. Purpose uses your own words to capture God's common purposes for all disciples, but vision is specific to you. Purpose anchors you, but vision evokes awe and releases your imagination. Because your motivating vision is a picture of God's preferred future. Pictures have power because of the way they focus us. It's said that a picture is worth a thousand words. And God wants to create through you and me the outcome rather than the process. Unity is the soul of fellowship. If you destroy a church's unity, you rip the heart out of the body of Christ. Unity is the essence. Unity is the core of how God wants us to experience life together in the church. Tommy shared last week how unity is super important. You know, the Bible has far more to say about Christians living in harmony and unity than it does about heaven or hell. Did you know that? God wants us to experience the true unity, the true community, and the true harmony, not only uh, within the church, but of all believers. Now, of course, when you think of heaven, we're going to experience real community perfectly there. But you know what? God wants us to experience it perfectly here on earth. Because nothing is more valuable to God than his church. It's his bride. It's his body. It, we're his flock. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that Christ died for the church. That's why the unity of God's family was the number one topic on Jesus' mind when he approached the cross. You know, think about it. If there had been something more important to Jesus, you can be sure he would have prayed it for it right before his crucifixion. We look at John chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, where Jesus said, I'm praying. I'm praying for all who believe in me because of my disciples' testimony. My prayer for them is that they'll be unified as one. Father, just as you and I are one, may they be unified, united as one. <clears throat> now, like every parent, every human parent, our Heavenly Father wants to see his children, us, get along with each other. Think about it. Uh, as many of you know, I was brought and born into an Italian-American family. I was one of six kids. And when we were young, my dad would load us up in 
the Country Squire station wagon. Anyone remember that? It had the wooden panels on the side. I see some heads nod. Yeah, so he'd pack us up, and we would drive to our grandparents in Brooklyn. And my father would kind of warn us, you guys have to behave in the car. And think of six kids in a station wagon. The back seat, you'd be looking out the back window, feeling nauseous the whole time. So he wanted us to behave. He wanted us to be united, but it was a long trip to Brooklyn from Glen Cove. So you could be sure and be certain that a fight or a wrestling match or something would always break out. Always. <laughs> you know, you want your kids to get along. You want your grandkids to get along. Today we're going to look at how all of us can better get along as brothers and sisters in the family of God. So the question is, what's my part? What's your part? What's our role? How are we supposed to do our part in fulfilling Christ's vision? Well, as I said, since God paid the highest price for the church, he wants it protected, especially from the damage caused by division and by conflict and by fighting. God says if you're a part of his family, he expects us to be an agent of unity. You and I are commissioned by Jesus, whether you know it or not, and you know it now. We're commissioned to be agents to do everything possible to preserve the unity and protect the fellowship that we're so blessed to have in this church. This morning, I want us to look at four steps to be an agent of unity in the church. Now, these aren't mine. They come from Saddleback Church in, in California. But the number one focus on what is, is what we share, not our differences. Focus on what you share, not your differences. When you get together with other Christians, focus on the things we have in common, not our differences. If we look at Romans chapter 14, verse 19, it reads, Let us concentrate on the things that create harmony and on the growth of one another's character. Think about that for a second. What do you do when you concentrate? Do you let your mind just wander anywhere? No, you focus on it. You give it your full attention. So then what are the things that we share in common as brothers and sisters in the family of God? Because we're all different. We look different. We act different. We're from different backgrounds. We're different sizes and shapes. We're different genders, different races. Well, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, that there are seven big things that we share in common. And we can see them all in one verse. In this verse, focus on the word one, how many times it's used. And it reads, there's only one body, and there's only one spirit, and we've been called to one hope. There's only one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and only one God who is the Father of us all, who is over all, and is through all, and is in all. So we look at that verse. We look at that verse and Paul said, focus on the things that we have in common. We're one body. Jesus doesn't have multiple bodies. He just has the church. We have one spirit. We've all been given the same Holy Spirit of salvation. We all share one hope. What's that? It's the hope of the second coming of Jesus. He didn't stay dead. He resurrected. He went back to heaven and he promised us that he will return, and he will return. We have one Lord. We don't worship multiple gods. We have one faith, and that faith is, con is contained in one book, 
the Bible. And of course, we have one baptism. Unless you were Christian as a Catholic, then you have two. But the good news is, it means that we don't have to be rebaptized every time we sin. Because otherwise, we'd be having baptisms in here every day. And you'd be dunking me in first. So what's he saying? We share the same salvation. We share the same forgiveness. We share the same grace. We share the same mercy. We share the same life. We share the same future. These factors are far more important than your gender or your race. They're more important than your economic status, your background, your sins, anything else. These are the things that God wants us to focus on, not our personal differences. You know, it's important to remember that all the differences that we have came from God. That means that we should value and enjoy and learn from those differences. We're all not the same. We need to be thankful of not just what we have in common. Believe it or not, we've got to celebrate our differences because they're God-given. God doesn't want you to merely tolerate other Christians. He wants us to be united with them. United with them. But unity is not uniformity. Important difference. God wants unity, but he doesn't want us to all be the same. For unity's sake, we must never let differences divide us. We have to stay focused on what matters most. What matters most. What's that? It's learning to love each other as Jesus loved his, and he loved us, fulfilling our part in his vision. I know what you're saying. <laughs> you're thinking, I get it too. But how do I be unified with someone who just irritates me to someone? Someone who's a jackass. Let me show you a couple of verses. In Romans 14, verse 1, Paul writes, You must accept all fellow believers, even weak ones, without arguing or judging them for different opinions. Now, that's not an easy verse to understand. Actually, it is easy to understand. It's just much, much harder to do. Let me give you a question that will change your perspective on how you deal with people that you don't like, that aggravate you, that irritate you, and you don't understand. When you see someone like that, and we see someone like that perhaps every day, that irritates you to no end, stop asking in your mind, what's wrong with them? And start asking a more empathetic question. What happened to them? I wonder what caused them to be such a jerk to do these things that they do. There is always trauma. There's always a reason or a crisis behind behavior. Hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. Terrible things have been done to some people, and in turn, they often do terrible things. If you find someone who's hurting other people, if you dig deep enough, you'll find that they've been hurt. The people that deserve it the least are the ones that Jesus calls us to provide the most understanding and compassion. Let me give you a, a second step in being an agent of unity. Realize that I must continually work at unity. I look myself in the mirror and I say this every day. I have to continually work at unity. I have to realize that it's not something that just happens. It's not accidental. If I want to be close to other people, I've got to work at it. In Ephesians 
chapter 4, verse 3. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. Bind yourself together, living in peace with each other. Now that phrase in that verse, make every effort, means it's going to take some work. Unity just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen in your family, in your marriage. It doesn't happen in a relationship. And it doesn't even happen automatically in our church. Unity happens only when we're intentional about it. You might say, Joe, how do I do that? I'm not exactly an expert on this, but let me share with you two things not to do. Because these destroy unity, they create division instead of vision. And friends, division always destroys vision. Division always destroys vision. So the first thing to not do is don't bring worldly values into church. And why is that? Because every time you bring worldly values to the church, it causes division. One of the world's values, and we see it every day, is the idolizing of celebrities and famous people. You know, think about it. There's a celebrity on every cover of every magazine. We see it on TV and commercials all the time. And with the advent of social media, everyone now wants to be their own little celebrity. More and more people are turning their lives into reality shows. Everyone, including junior high girls and boys, are doing everything for an audience today. People are marketing themselves as if they're a product. <clears throat> Last week, Laura and I watched the Chris Rock's new uh, special on Netflix. And I don't recommend children watching this, by the way, if you know Chris Rock. Um, it was awful funny, but at, at times often foul. But one of the things that really hit home to me is he talked about how this generation, this younger generation, it was no longer about who loved you or how you loved, how many people you loved or how many people loved you. It was all about how many likes you got, how many likes you got on Facebook when you posted. That was most important. Because as, as long as people are being packaged and produced, it's a bad thing because they're long on reputation but they're short on character. And it can't be that way in church because in, in the church, there's a difference between fame and character. And why does it matter? Why does that matter? Because God says it matters. Whenever we focus on personalities and preferences or power or pleasure or people or prestige, it's always going to happen. But if we concentrate on relationships and loving each other, then harmony results. The second thing not to do. <clears throat> don't be sucked into the world's fights. I don't have to tell you that there's a lot of conflict out there in society. In our culture today, it's crazy. People are arguing about everything. Today, it's gotten worse because we have social media where anyone can argue about anything. They say to the things online that they would never say to someone's face. And they do. What do you think Jesus, or what did Jesus say about politics? Not much. There's only two statements that I've found in the Bible where Jesus made political statements. The first was about paying taxes to Caesar when he was asked. But the second we're going to look at is in John chapter 18, verse 36, 
when Jesus was asked a political question, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. It's not our fight. <clears throat> there is a fight going on out there, but it's not our fight. We have a battle, but it's not the one you hear about. Our weapons are different too. Christians, as Christians, we're called to speak the truth. As Christians, we're called to speak up. We're called to speak for the vulnerable, the elderly, the unborn, the poor. We're called to speak up for those who are denied justice. Those are all moral issues that can be backed up with literally hundreds, hundreds of verses in the Bible. As I was preparing the sermon this week, I found out that there were over 2,000 verses in the Bible about taking care of the poor. 2,000. And they're about the same number about making sure everyone is treated fairly with justice. However, there are a lot of issues that we see on TV or read in the paper every day. And guess what? The Bible is silent about them. It says nothing about all that stuff because it's not our fight as Christians. If you've ever been on social media, you know there are a lot of people, including some Christians out there, who are ready to pick a fight with you because they're addicted to anger the same way many people are addicted to drugs. What do we do with these internet trolls who just want to pick a fight with us? Here's what the Bible says about dealing with people who like to fight and get into arguments. <clears throat> if we look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it says this. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone to be able to teach and not be resentful. What does that mean? It means in a world where everyone likes to argue today, it's telling us not to start arguments. Don't get hooked on arguments. Don't participate in an argument. Many, many places in Scripture, in Psalms, and particularly in Proverbs, we're told to stay clear of the argument of people. The book of Proverbs says it so well. Go, go read the book of Proverbs, and you'll see what the Bible has to say about staying away from arguments. And it's not new. It's been happening for over 2,000 years. We look back at the church in Rome, and they were starting to split because they had conflict over rules about what you could eat and what you couldn't eat. What? And Paul admonished them. In Romans chapter 12, verse 20, he said, don't tear apart the work of God over a rule about food. I'm like, a rule about food. Now, it may not be about food. It may be about who you or I voted for. It may be about some other issue. We're being told to not tear apart the work of God over a secondary issue. You know, what fascinates me is that what was written 2,000 years ago, in so many cases, is more relevant today than it was 2,000 years ago, or at least as relevant. <clears throat> the third step to being an agent of unity in our church, in your family, in your marriage, in your relationships, and here's a big one. Be realistic in your expectations. If when we got married, we expected our marriage to be perfect all the time, that was an unrealistic expectation. And it's the same thing with our church. To, ex 
to expect any church to do everything right and minister perfectly to everyone all the time, every Sunday, is unrealistic. It's a fantasy. We all make mistakes. In Psalms 119, verses 96, it reads, Nothing is perfect except your words. Friends, everything is broken on this planet. The weather, certainly our economy, our bodies, our relationships, and our minds. Nothing works perfectly except God's word. To expect perfection with anyone or anything or any job is setting yourself up for a massive disappointment. But here's the good news. All of those can be healthy without being perfect. And let me say this, and I want you to listen closely to this. Even with all its faults and all its failures and all its mistakes over the years and its sin, Jesus passionately loves his church. He wants us to do the same. Longing for the ideal while criticizing the real is evidence of spiritual maturity. And that is so, so true. On the other hand, settling for the real without striving for the ideal is complacency. So what's spiritual maturity? Maturity is living with the tension. It reminds me of parenting. In parenting, you don't wait for your kids to grow up before you start loving them. You don't wait for your kids to mature before you start loving them. You love them at every stage, every stage of their life. When my kids would bring me a picture at two years old, and it was all scribbling, I'd say, that's perfect, honey. But if she brought me the same picture when she was 30, I'd scratch my head and say, what's wrong here? But it was perfect at every stage, at that earlier stage. And we need to learn people and love people at every stage of their lives and at every stage of their Christian growth. And we need to learn to love our church and any church in every stage of its growth. Let me be honest with you. As someone who's walked with Jesus over 60 years now, and I'll tell you this from experience, other believers will disappoint you. Other believers are going to let you down in life. But that's no excuse for not fellowshipping with them. It's no excuse for stop loving them. God wants you to love the real church, not the ideal church. These people, the people you have a hard time with, they're your family. They're my family. We're going to live with them in eternity, and when they don't act like it, you just can't walk away from them. And I know sometimes we do. Sometimes I've done that. But in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. You know, if we walk out in every situation that we have difficulty with, how are we going to build Christ-like character? If we, want to rave, if we run away from every problem we face, how are we going to build character? Becoming like Christ requires problems and pressure and pain and persecution and a lot of other things that we don't like. But as I've said many times, God's not interested in your comfort as much as he's interested in your character. You're not taking your comfort to heaven. You're taking your character to heaven. The comfort is going to be in heaven. 
This here, our lives on earth, it's the get ready stage. The sooner we give up the illusion that something has to be perfect in order to love it, the sooner we're going to be much better because we'll quit pretending and start admitting that we're all imperfect and that we all need grace. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 reads, Most of all, let love guide your life, for then the whole church will stay together in perfect harmony. This isn't rocket science, friends. Let love, let love guide your life. Let me give you one other principle that I think we need to work on. Because we're in an age where there's more division and woke going on in our society. We have to insulate ourselves from all the conflict and love each other. If people like what they see in us, they'll listen to what we say. If they like what they see in us, they'll listen to what we say. And the fourth principle from God's word that we can use to be an agent of unity is offer encouragement instead of criticism. When you're talking to other people, offer encouragement, not criticism. And that's counterculture to our society because our culture doesn't offer encouragement. It offers criticism. People make a living being critics. Hardly anyone makes a living being an encourager. In Romans chapter 14, verse 19 and 20, in the message version, it reads, let's use all our energy in getting along with each other. Don't drag each other down by finding fault. You know, we want to direct our energy in the right way. We want to use our energy in getting along with each other, in helping each other, by using encouraging words. We're told not to drag others down by finding fault. Hey, we all have fault. So the message is more encouragement, less criticism. And if we look at Proverbs chapter 16, verse 21, it reads, A wise, mature person is known for his understanding. The more pleasant his words, the more persuasive he is. <clears throat> you know, friends, you'll never, and you are never per persuasive when you're abrasive. You're never persuasive when you're abrasive. And if you say something offensively, it'll always be received defensively. So now I'll be honest with you. It's hard to be negative when so much of our culture is negative. We're bombarded with continually diet of criticisms and attacks and slander and malicious talk on the cable news channels. We don't ha have news anymore, regardless of what channel you watch. It's three hours of someone's opinion. And because we live in a culture of negativity, it's always easier for us to stand on the sidelines and take shots than to get involved and make a contribution. And God warns us over and over and over and over not to criticize, not to compare, not to judge each other. He says literally a hundred times in Scripture, over and over again, if we look at Romans chapter 14, verse 4, it says, What right do you have to criticize somebody else's servant? Only the Lord can decide if they're doing right. Those are words of wisdom. Other people are not your servant, not in the same way, but other people aren't your responsibility. They're God's responsibility. When I judge you, if you're a believer, 
or when I judge any other believer, four things I believe instantly happen. The Bible says, I lose fellowship with God. Number two, I expose my own pride and insecurity. <clears throat> number three, I set myself up to be judged by God. And number four, I harm the fellowship of church. Friends, all of this aren't my words. They're in the book of Romans. Remember, other Christians, no matter how much you disagree with them, are not the real enemy. There are many more principles about being an agent of unity, of doing things nice, of encouraging people, not um, criticizing them. But I want to sum it up with just two more verses that in many, many ways represent the two choices we have today and every day. Every single day of our life, we can choose which of these two verses we want to live by. And the first choice we're going to talk about is to live a self-centered life. Not worry about those who hurt and walk around you. Not worry about those who are judgmental of you or that you were judgmental of. And the second choice we're going to look at is to live a Christ-centered life instead of a self-centered life. One that cares about what he cares about. And love others like he has loved us. The first verse is Galatians chapter 5, thir verses 13 to 15. And it reads, You were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only don't let this freedom be an opportunity to indulge your selfish impulses, but serve each other through love. All the law has been fulfilled in a single statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other, be careful that you don't get eaten up by each other. You know what's sad? Is that verse describes a lot of Christians in today's culture. A lot of Christians are mean and demeaning as the comments they post on social media. And you'd expect these posts from non-believers. What's happened in the guys gospel has not penetrated their character. But there is an alternative, and it's this verse. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, it reads, Finally, all of you should be united in spirit, sympathetic, filled with love for each other, compassionate and humble. In that verse, Peter gives us four essential qualities that we all need to work on. In this culture, he says, the, key, the keys to living in harmony with Christians that you disagree with are these four things. They're the four things, the four keys to maintaining unity in the church that God and that Jesus calls us to protect. Number one, if we sympathize with each other instead of criticize or antagonizing or polarizing over our differences, if the thing we value most is our relationship to each other in God's eternal family. The next one, he says, if we show compassion instead of division. If we show compassion instead of condescension. If we show compassion instead of criticism. If we do all that, then we're going to have the benefits of unity. If we act in humility instead of inflexibility, instead of irritability, and instead of animosity. And in closing, the last thing that Jesus said before he went to the cross he said, Father, may they be one. In today's world, we're anything but that. The church is not one. It's divided by politics. It's divided by racism. 
It's divided by lots of different stuff. Jesus is still waiting for his prayer to be answered. Will we be the generation that answers that prayer? That, that they would be one? That's our calling. And brothers and sisters, my friends, that's our part in fulfilling Christ's vision. Let's pray. Father God, Heavenly Father, thank you for our lives. Thank you for our families. Thank you for our loved ones, our friends, our fellowship that we share. Thank you for our church. And again, Father, the love and fellowship that we share with each other in your name. And this morning, dear God, I pray that we will have a new commitment to love each other, regardless of our background, our race, our politics, regardless of our economic status, our gender, and all the different things that on the surface divide us. Father, help us to realize that the only thing that's going to last in the entire universe is your church. Dear God, your family is the reason you created the universe, and we're part of that. Father, thank you for that privilege. And dear God, we want to be more loving. We want to each be an agent of unity, not a divider. We want to get to know you and follow you and learn to trust you and all that's been said in your word. Forgive us for all the things that we've done wrong and continue to do wrong. And we pray that one day, through your grace and mercy, you would accept us into your kingdom. We pray that for the loved ones that have gone before us. We pray that for our children and grandchildren. And Father, dear God, we pray all this in the powerful and precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.